Hello, and welcome to Mind Matters Podcast, presented by A Light for Change, where we talk about the who, what, where, when, why, and how we as a community can make positive changes. The when is up to all of us, and it starts with you. Before I start, let's get into a positive zone, and I'll share my thoughts on a question from Graduate Thrivers Paths Cards. This one is green for creative thinking, and the question is, if you had a superpower, what would it be? I suppose it would be the hug of compassion and eyes of happiness, so that if I hugged you, you would feel wholly seen and accepted, and if I looked at you, you would see and be inspired to follow your path to happiness which is slightly different than what it used to be. I used to say I wanted the power to pause time so I can pick everybody up and move them around the game board of life and place them where they would be happiest. But I now realize that people need to make their own paths. This is season one, mental health. Episode four, your identity and your mind. What is identity? According to my resiliency workbook, Your identity includes the unique characteristics that make up who you are. This includes your nationality, your beliefs, how you spend your time, your appearance, including your hairstyle and clothing, your gender, your life roles, your values, your family, your job, your education, your experiences, your choices, and the habits and comforts that you hold. I have taken this to mean that expressing our identity consciously and subconsciously under these categories is our coded message to all around us about how we want to be treated and how we view ourselves. When we, by choice or physical characteristic, express our nationality, gender, political and or faith beliefs, we are letting people know we are proud, the common rules that we must follow, what language we may speak, whether or not we may be local, and we allow them to make an assumption on some potential experiences we may have had. There are also key factors in our emotion, hy- emotional hygiene because they can give us a sense of belonging or lonely segregation. When we are around those of common nationality, gender expression, political belief, or faith belief, it can increase our confidence and active participation in the community. But once you separate from a common community and integrate with others, for many, these parts of their identity affect their mental health because they may have a harder time communicating or understanding the customs, which reduces their confidence. Others may not understand the person and avoid or criticize them as a personal defense mechanism, which also lends to segregated loneliness. It is human nature to fear what we do not understand, and because we have ignored our minds for so long, being taboo to talk about, most of humanity has developed unhealthy ways to express this fear uncertainty. Most often, a negative response to nationality, gender expression, and faith and political beliefs are because the two opinions are in contrast or challenge each other's idea of fact. Empathy is a strong value to have when you contend with ignorance, as it helps you see the struggle is theirs and the onus is not on you to change what is natural. 
Beliefs are a big part of the choices we make. For instance, a male might think, my job as a male is to work hard, be strong, and be brave, because that is what he has heard and saw all his life. We have this belief based on a conceived standard. If we feel we are not able to achieve it, the negative internal dialogue starts to attack our confidence make us doubt our worthiness and question if love feelings are deserved due to the guilt for underachieving. A belief can have a significant value in driving you to aim for your best, but it is important to see when a belief is becoming unhealthy, like when you find yourself obsessing over whether or not you are able to obtain it, or if it is an underlining and all-consuming factor in the choices you make, limiting your perceived freedom of independent expression. <clears throat> How you spend your time reflects your identity in that it shows your ambition, drive, or focus. Some of us may be satisfied with how we spend our time, while others not so much so, and this usually ties into how they feel compared to a set belief. Your mental health is afflicted when your focus feels struggled instead of joyous. Unfortunately, it is human nature to assume to know one's character and personality based on a few brief interactions with someone. They are a workaholic. They are lazy. They are a risk taker. They are adventurous. They are boring. They are weird, and so forth. These judgments further affect our mental health by initiating a defense mechanism or instilling a belief that one does not fit in. Our appearance is our canvas of expressed identity. We use it consciously and subconsciously to express how we feel, to encourage an unfamiliar perspective, to enhance our confidence, and to show our level of compliance. However, it is also a big part of societal assumptions. Whether you wash and style your hair regularly can be a sign of depression, but also of acceptance with what is natural. Having an unkempt appearance could be a sign of laziness, but could also be a sign someone is burning the wick at both ends. Someone can be well put together, trying to look confident, but in actuality, they are terrified and unprepared. Where someone who wears a lot of black and metal may be trying to say they are confident, but to others, they appear to be a depressed hellion. On the other hand, there might be someone who wears high-end attire all the time to show stature, but really, they live beyond their means. My point is that as much as using your appearance to communicate how you feel or think is powerful, it also leaves room for judgment. There is nothing more effective than honest communication. I raise a preteen who has an emotionally driven, all-over-the-place style, so I tell her when I can that people will judge and not to expect people to understand and see eye to eye with you, but to keep being yourself and that people are different and have different perspectives, not, be, not to be afraid to convey her side with gentle words. Now we get to life roles, which crosses over all of these categories, and it's kind of the one word phrase that describes your nature towards others. There are the regal types, the bossy types, the scholars and the sages, the helpers and the prophets, the brave and the meek, the workers and the planners, the builders, 
the creators, as well as the caregivers and the providers, each with their honest and dishonest members. Most of us are a combination of more than one. The roles are an expression of our values in life. What we think is most important. Sometimes that information was determined based on trauma, which limits someone from enjoying life because the value does not make room for the real them. This is often the case with narcissistic parent-child relationships and increased moments of discussion, but can also be from observed behaviors and limited exposure to difference. When our life role is truly ours, it makes us feel fulfilled to provide the service. We are good at it to others. When we do not feel fulfilled by the role we play, then it starts to afflict our mental health. Any time in life you feel lost or unhappy with the way things are going, it's always a good time to reflect, asking yourself why. What is different now than before? How long have you felt this way? And so on. Each time the questions you reflect on will be uniquely yours, but the idea is to play detective and then plan, prepare, and adjust as required with the aim of living your own version of a mindfully joyous life. I just said your role is a representation of your value, but in the sense of value when it comes to identity, it is for whom you prioritize yourself for. Some people value themselves most, only helping others to benefit themselves, where others value earnings most, working themselves to the bone, burning bridges to get there faster than the rest. There are also those that value family, neglecting independent opportunity for the good of the whole, while some value youth most, refusing to conform to age stereotypes and keeping with the in crowd. There is also the people who value belonging most, becoming a chameleon to suit anyone near, and those that value adventure most, always on the move, exploring new possibilities, but never belonging to any. Some value tradition so much they cannot adapt to the ever-modernizing world, while still others value order most and will never venture outside the lines, no matter how intriguing it seems. There are many other values, and each is important to have with its own pro-qualities, but you will notice I worded my sentences to reflect the extreme sacrifice of each to emphasize that when allowing your values to be in control of your choices, as opposed to yourself being in control of your choices, your mental health is afflicted because you are creating a question you cannot stop yourself from solving. In leaving room for the what if or if I, if things were different in life, or leaving room for negative internal dialogue, which most often spirals into self-hate and regret, I don't think I really need to explain how our job forms our identity and impacts our mental health because I'm sure if I asked any one person what they like and don't like about their job, they could spend a good while listing things that will overlap most of the categories we have already covered and some that are coming. However, like the other groups, I will say it is important to align your real self with what you choose to do as a productive member of society. Too many of us have these huge lists because we choose jobs based on what we think will have us seen in high regards, or we downplay ourselves to believe that is all we can achieve. 
I have a saying that is, there is no such thing as can't, only unwillingness. So do not ask yourself if you deserve happiness, but ask yourself, are you willing to be happy? This does not mean quit and leave yourself high and dry on a whim, but to make baby steps towards your metamorphosis. Remember, people will judge and criticize for their own personal reasons, but if you value joy most, you will already feel the reason to know that their issue is theirs and not yours, and to just let it go. Education is valued in our society as part of our identities, and we proudly affix our titles to our names. Having a limited education <clears throat> then naturally afflicts our mental health because it degrades our confidence, segregates us from opportunity, renders us, us as unacceptable for remarkable things, and even creates a scale by which we continuously must, me must measure ourselves. Education is so much more than a scholarly achievement. And because our society downplays the value of life education, most of us lost the joy of learning. Many before even being released from the educational facilities, our governments have mandated be accessible to all. Learning happens every moment, all the time. Just not every bit of information we are exposed to intrigues us enough to learn. However, many of us escape our menial lives into a passion we learn in depth for fun, not because it'll get a job or recognition, but just for the satisfaction of learning and mastering the information that surrounds the topic. These passions open doors for social belonging because even if you're one in a million, there's still 8,600 people who have the same passion as you in the world. Perhaps one day our society will learn to value those who learn for passion instead of title and value. But in the meantime, learn for the joy of it. Having a drive to learn and a curiosity for life helps us to ignite our sense of purpose, gives us reason to find commonality and acceptance in the world outside of our box and brings to light some of humanity's best qualities. Plus, you will feel accomplished, lending to self-pride and confidence, and even better, a taste of mindful bliss. Habits and comforts are part of an, our expression of identity, as well of a, as an expression of mental health, more than it is a thing that afflicts us. Though there is always the harm caused by an excessive, any excessive behavior. A habit can be as small as nail biting and as large as obsessive compulsive disorder. Really, anything you do instinctually under certain conditions is a habit. I tend to bite my tongue when I'm concentrating, which is small and not worth licking into, but all my life I have been overcoming some sort of obsessive behavior. From eating each thing on my plate, separate in a clockwise fashion, to writing a 600-page book in three months because I got tired of explaining a theory I had come up with trying to understand the key to happiness. Most of my habitual behaviors involve compartmentalizing, organizing, planning, and going hard till the end. Some habits cross over as comforts, for me, like tea. I have one as soon as I wake up in the morning, 
and maybe an hour after that, and then it just keeps going. It soothes me, makes me think of my main source of safety as a child, my father. It gives me a bit of a kick too, but like anything not natural to our system, when added in excess, it will affect your physical health and throw it out of kilter. For instance, my tea drinking has given me irritable bowel syndrome. Like with tea, I need to be careful with any comforting habit I pick up because I have an addictive personality. My mind seems to always be in thought and sometimes it has overwhelming and unrelenting thoughts all at once. So when something quietens my mind for even a minute, I just want more of it because it seems to be the only time I can just be in a moment. I have fallen into drugs rather hard a few times, but have been incredibly lucky to have a good support network to pull me out of my numbing cycles. Now that I have given you a glimpse into some of my negative afflictions relating to my comforts and habits, I want you to know that it is also good to have some habits and comforts. It is a good habit to brush your teeth, drink water, and take time to reflect on the moments of the day and your emotions to do activities that soothe you in your stress, and to get enough sleep and proper nutrition to fuel you through your day. These are things that can bring your mind and body back to one cohesive unit when you're afflicted, but also maintain your balance if your mind is not afflicted. How do these things form your identity though? Well, it's a matter of how you present it. I directly tell people I am confronted by that I am a habitual tea drinker. By informing them I am a teaist, I have made it my identity. Other times, people assign it to you as your identity, and you either must fight the label, or you end up giving in and making the label true. This is often the case for people who are com comforted by food or alcohol, which also happens to be the two most partaken in comforting habits for those with less afflicted mindset, it can be easier to diagnose if a habit or behavior is within your control or where it comes from. Others, like myself, might need to dig through layers and years of moments to see the full scale of a habit. Like my mild OCD tendencies have been an environmental control mechanism since I survived infant sexual assault by a familiar mem familial member who was then taken away for institutional care after a trial during which I was held by the government in government care facilities. For me, I had been building defenses since I was less than a year old and living with them as a habitual comfort for over 40 years now. Unfortunately, the same incident impacted my mother drastically in ways she has yet to discover, but somehow turned into a narcissistic relationship with me in a fraudulent or non-existent relationship with the world around her. This has added so many layers to my complex personality that altered my idea of my role, my values, and how I go about living my life and making choices. Which brings me to experiences. I just informed you of a moment from a time before I can remember, yet it has impacted my entire life, and I was blessed with a father who taught me the basics of emotional hygiene practice. 
Unfortunately, it was in a time when the average medical professional knew little of how to work with mental health afflictions or how to properly apply first aid to the matter. The long hovering idea that poor mental health is a taboo has left the global population unaware of how to process all they go through and endure. Every experience impacts our mental health from our identity and forms our identity. Every rejection, every disappointment, every time we are scared, every time we feel left alone, every time someone else cares less than we do, every time we are left out, every time we are hurt, every injury, every heartbreak, every setback or failure, every low is just as powerful in forming our identity as the highs. Every win, every time we are invited to join something, every successful completion of a project, every time we overcome a challenge or a fear, every time our cause is rooted for, and every time someone stands up for us and for every achievement. They're all like notes our brain takes on how to live life. I really like singing, but throughout my youth, many people whose opinion mattered to me said I should not sing because I was tone deaf. I still like singing, but never in front of anyone other than my children, not even my husband. I have been not good at many things, but trained myself to be good. So why not the same with singing? Well, because I learned as a child that singing in public resulted in judgment and ridicule, which is something I avoided at all costs. I always work hard to go above and beyond to avoid those feelings, hence why I became an overachiever and strive for the top of only half my potential, because I learned at an early age that being a teacher's pet meant praise and respect. Choices are a complicated part of our identity and our mental health, because we tend to think of them as being our own, but as I have said, Many times already in this podcast, there is so much we do not actively think about that impacts our choices. The thing about choices, though, is that they are always being made and are our responsibility once we make them. We no longer live in a society where our professionals are unknowledgeable and people are a little less ignorant. So we now have the choice to be fully in control of our choices through mindful understanding and planning. That is the biggest lesson I have learned about happiness. No thing or person can give it to you. You need to choose to be happy by seeking out the small moments that bring you joy each day and making the best out of the moments that do not. There's a lesson to be had in everything that you live through. Without pain, growth would not be possible. We do not know we are okay without our parents by our side until we make it through those first few days of school or daycare. We would not stand for peace if we did not know the effects of war. What I'm getting at is that the choices you made in the past have already been made and cannot be unmade. So forgive yourself for having lived through and learned from your past. Celebrate your wins and vow to choose in line with what brings you joy from here forward. According to my resiliency workbook, your health impacts your identity when you are worried or anxious. It might be hard to focus on things other than what you are worried or anxious about. Feeling depressed 
can impact how motivated you feel about doing things and what you need to do. You may feel as though you have no energy or ongoing pain can make it hard to focus on things other than the pain. It can make taking part in life activities more difficult. You might feel sad or frustrated when it's hard to do the things you want or need to do. This means conditions can change things about you, such as how you behave, how you interact with people, whether you can take part in things you used to like doing, and how well you can do them. When your health or symptoms start to impact your identity, it can be hard to feel like yourself. I take this to mean that internal turmoil, inner turmoil comes about when we find our core values or identity markers and they are challenged. Sometimes they can even change the dynamics of our identity. This goes for day-to-day -day activities like houseworks to role beliefs. I am not sure I ever really knew who I am, but I do remember when my values changed from be the best you can be doing what you really enjoy to neglect yourself for others. I was just starting my 20s when I had enough of dealing with the fake, nice, but actually cruel world of people putting their best foot forward to be considered successful, even if it meant stepping on the backs of others. I gave up everything I had worked so hard for and went to be with those my peers had shunned. I did not know I would be accepted, but I was, with open arms. That is where my inner turmoil began. Until then, my whole life's subconscious statement was to make myself the person everyone treasured and protected, worth caring of as such as a prized possession, though few in my world were good people. I associated, once I associated with the broken and abused, I found myself surrounded by good people everywhere. From then forward, I vowed to show my new peers the way up and to forget their circumstances played a role. I was not the middle of the pack here. I was the alpha, which led to attracting partners that made me a trophy wife and I their kingmaker. I spent 10 years complacent with this idea that it was better to be the queen of good in darkness than to walk chained to negativity, basking in the light. That is until I had to swallow another harsh pill of inner turmoil, which was my idea of privilege and deservingness. I had been giving away my privileges, my knowledge, my grace, my fortitude, and my understanding of the achiever's way. But each time I pulled back the curtain to let the light shine on someone, they, choose, they changed as soon as they stepped into it. Even though they now had so much more, they were angry and hate-driven. If the chain of negativity was unavoidable along the path up, and positivity and hope lived in the darkness, then how was one to know where one deserves to be? The question was unanswerable for me at the time, and I slipped into a drug addled nothingness. It was there I realized that none of us are granted light or darkness. The light just shines to show us the path. Our vulnerabilities live in the shadows because they are the birthplace of our desire to walk on the path that is light. Some say I have God on my side, 
Others say I have a guardian angel. Whether I do or not, for me, is not as important as the people who held their hands together to give me a step up. Not by force or because it was their job, but just because they cared. This time, though, when I stepped into the light, negativity did not lasso my ankles and chain down my heart. I was just walking, almost skipping, hand in hand with my son, Alexandre. I looked back one day, though, and I realized I felt guilty for being granted eyes of light again, when so many were more deserving from whence I just came. This had changed the path behind me. There was no clear line between the dark and the light, and it was all kind of grayish. When I looked forward again, my son whispered to me, It's so foggy I can hardly see the path. So I surrounded him with every source of light I could find. I did not know I had blinded him, though, with the reflection against the fog, and it caused him to crash into a tree. He flew away that day straight towards the light, and I dropped to my knees, smacked in the face with more inner turmoil of love and loss. I crawled on my knees for a bit, just trying not to crumble in front of my younger children, but my shoulders broke under the weight of my mind crushing my spine and paralyzing me into a quivering mess that realized I would miss every moment of Alex's life that I had grown to look forward to. And I had hated the world for the idea its fog and slippery slopes could envelop my other children as well. Soon after I was given my lesson, which is love, unconditional love, not held by time or place, but the kind of love that sees the whole for its good and bad and embraces it all. I looked down and from my heart, bursts of light were shining. When I looked around, things were a little blurry, like I was seeing two different scenes overlapped and playing at once, but yet the understanding was all so clear. Everyone I walked near would start to glow and more areas started to light up. Now I faced my biggest challenge, informing my identity as a reliable, authentic, and dependable person, a person of integrity, a strong communicator that exemplifies compassion. I focus on teens because it's where I see the most need to hear the message of emotional hygiene, where you can walk in light unchanged from negativity. But I preach to and fight for everyone in a compassionate way that will hopefully one day light all our hearts so humanity can shine its brightest. My mind is still really frazzled, so every moment I live, I need to consciously choose to see with mindful happiness in my eyes and the whole picture. Speaking of the whole picture, I want to backtrack for a second. I spoke a little earlier on how gender is part of our identity and how the opinion of others can impact our mental health. But I feel in this current era of acceptance, we should talk a little bit about gender confusion. I personally don't think anyone is confused. We are all possessing of traits that are masculine and feminine. It is part of what makes us a unique species. We are whole. It is our experiments, our experiences, our environment, and the activities we are choosing that lend to the confusion. We seem to think that societal norms determine how she, we should label ourselves. She likes doing masculine things, so she must identify as more male. 
He is attracted sexually to other males, so he must identify as gay. It's all just labels for things that are really no one's concern. Why does it matter to anyone else who you like to have sex with as long as the person you engage with is consenting? It doesn't change our lives unless you are concerned with a bloodline of inheritance. If you are good at what you do and can keep up with industry, industry standards, what difference does your genitalia play? None that needs concern other employees. I guess I am confused on why we need so many labels for the fact that we finally acknowledge that we are allowed to express our unique selves. Is labeling not in contrast to being unique? If you accept yourself, then you are just human. No label. If others can't accept you, that is their own demon to fight. I am female by gender, non-binary by interest and physical ability, gender fluid in my sexual intrigue, and masculine in my defense mechanisms. But overall, none of that matters to you. What matters to you is that I bring the best of all of me to the present moment and that I leave a positive fingerprint in the world wherever I may go. Consenting adults should be honest of their desires and accepting of their choices. If we apply that to all aspects of our lives, then differences of opinion are just understandings and the need for gender labeling unnecessary as a classification of a person. I mention this because it is a hot topic these days when talking to teens about my next topic. Teenage independence is an issue all adults and guardians of the future are mishandling. Somewhere along the way to becoming modern humans, we have decided that it is our duty to mold our children. What we are doing is stripping them of their identity. Instead of guiding them on how to move through the highs and lows of life, building emotionally hygienic experiences that will form a future for them that is joyous and productively beneficial to their place in the world. Advancement and discovery are a result of thinking outside of the box for a better solution, for the most part beneficial to all. Imagine how far we would be in understanding the big picture of those unanswerable human questions if we allowed everyone to fit their piece of the puzzle in without having to deform it to fit the piece where it does not belong. As parents, you are meant to catch them when they fall, not stop them from falling. As parents, we are meant to show them how to apply care to their wounds so they heal properly, not teach them to pretend they never happened. As parents, we are meant to be an example of what it looks like to form a positive light-emitting identity through all of life's trials and tribulations, not an example of fear and anguish. These are the years they form their identity. Let's encourage them to be their best selves and not what we think is best for the sake of a better tomorrow. Now let's, that's how we guard the future. Sometimes life can make you feel as if you have no control over life making it hard to say making it hard for you to stay connected to a sense of self and stay grounded grounded to your values every aspect of mental health work is about dedication to self-improvement and willingness to say yes to what your needs are at a given moment there's a lot of personal reflective work that goes into understanding how our minds work and a bunch of baby steps to learning how to work with our past 
present and future situations in a way that we put our best foot forward in life while experiencing the joy each lesson brings as we take on the gambit of emotions presented by living. It is a lifestyle commitment in the same way as being physically healthy is. Redefining your ideas or values of your identity under the new circumstantial understandings. If you took a step back and looked at your future, how would you see yourself? Not what are you doing, who you are with, what you own, but who you are. That is the person you are making a path to. So make sure that the person at the end of it all is someone you can love. Someone who has made billions of memories shared by so many who will have forever made more and forever had left a fingerprint upon them. The path are the steps you plan to take to get there, but still it requires dedication to walking the path and choosing to be happy. My resiliency workbook offers these ways you can help yourself commit. Make a daily schedule of what you need to do. Allow your, the schedule to d dictate what you do rather than your mood or symptoms. Pace yourself. Know what you are capable of and set boundaries. Re reward yourself when you achieve your goals. Make time for activities that you enjoy and look forward to. I commit by following the 12 universal laws of beautiful growth. Where your statement is to be happy, you weigh the odds on whether to experience a fork in the path mindfully or not. You own the good and the bad as part of you, forming a trinity. You create four pillar stages and you follow it through four goals, each producing four pivotal steps within each goal as you work through the fifth and sixth universal laws. Then as you cross the finish line, having completed four pillars, you can understand the reward you worked so hard for, only to realize that having done so opened up a whole new part of your path in the eighth, where you need to redesign where you will aim for next. But luckily by the ninth, you will have a support network <coughs> <clears throat> pardon me, that makes walking the path so much more enjoyable. So that in the 10th, you can look at your life and say, this is happiness. Planting the seed of this way of life in all you meet as you move through the 11th. And then you'll slide into the 12th universal law where you can sit in the shade of the blossoming tree that grew out of the 11th you seeded. Why do I follow this cosmic thinking, you might ask? I do so because it's reflected in every recovery program I have seen, from the AA 12-step program to the big messages in every faith around the world. It can be read about in every book on how to achieve success, how to make friends or connections, and so many other how-to instructional guides. In order to go <clears throat> from where you are now, to where you want to be, you need to make time to do so first. What does your schedule look like? And how does it impact your identity and your mental health? Our identity is how we want to be seen, as well as how we are perceived. Confusing the two is when it impacts our mental health. By focusing on others' perceptions of how you make use of your time, 
will potentially find yourself overwhelmed, overexerted, unfulfilled, stressed, unorganized, or a variety of negatively charged emotions. Some people find it useful to use a 24-hour clock divided into half-hour intervals or an agenda and plot in each activity. Others find it more manageable to assign a function to a time block with activity choices that correlate to the function. Another portion of people like to go with the flow overall and assign specific days to a focus that guides the feeling of that day. Another set of people may prefer to have a simple routine most days and then focus on a single activity outside of that routine on another day, such as the weekend. There are also a few that may opt for a complete schedule revamp, dropping all old activities and adopting a whole new set. Generally speaking, though, when it comes to change, humans find it easier to add something or increase an existing activity than we do to stop or reduce an activity. We process easier if we think we are gaining a positive. Next, ask yourself how much energy is required for what you are doing. The energy that makes our physical system operate, the energy to exert in physical activity, and the energy for cognitive functioning all come from the same source. We feed that source two ways, nutrition and rest. Rest. Ask yourself what proper nutrition looks like and to you. And how does it impact your identity and mental health? Identify if you think you could improve in your opinion and if there are any health factors to consider making changes for. It is already popular conversation today, but we need to consider hydration as part of nutrition, as being only 2 to 5% dehydrated can reduce your working mind engagement by 30%. Considering nutritional value is not so much about what you eat, but what it provides for us. We all have different vitamin and protein balances, and most foods can be used to regulate our levels by changing our intake rate. But more than that, food is converted into energy and chemical messengers by forming amino acids. Food stimulates serotonin which is a chemical that carries messages between nerve cells in the brain and throughout your body and plays a key role in such body functions as mood, sleep, digestion, nausea, wound healing, bone health, blood clotting, and sexual desires. It is best to understand the psychology to your eating behaviors, which can be a daunting task. There are apps like Noom for this, but you can do it yourself if you're willing to get really analytical and recognize your patterns. To follow this, consider your limitations and how you can work around them. Food can be more expensive, so getting creative with the ways you get to get more bang for your buck can be very helpful. The food guide recommends fresh food, but realistically, frozen and preserved food is just as good for you. If you can try to grow your own and preserve the extras for the fall, even better. Most people will yell out finances, considering today's cost of living, but there are also the needs of others you have to plan for. Health factors that limit your choices and the impact of judgment, as well as the impact of your internal dialogue, which are all big contenders. 
My story with nutrition is a roller coaster, to say the least, and something I use now to break the biases behind conventional stereotypes. I have been small my whole life and have been told it is due to a high metabolism, but this meant I would lose weight rapidly if I was not eating well. As a teen, I went vegan without the knowledge and product availability we have today and wound up in the hospital. I was blessed to be from a family with financial comfort. Despite my father's choice to appear humble, they were able to afford providing me up to 4,000 calories worth of food per day to main my activity level. As a young, independent adult, my budget for calorie intake was more like 1,500 calories a day, and every reduced calorie was reflected in increased depression. My budget increased to afford up to around 300 3,000 calories a day as I reached a comfortable, settled-in stage of adulthood, and I looked great going to the gym once a week. Then my breakdown came, and my income was reduced by more than 50%, so cuts had to be made. I had my two youngest to consider and didn't want them to suffer, so I starved myself while I let them eat whatever and whenever. My My stomach shrank so small I rarely felt hungry anymore. I was skin and bone and gauntly sick looking. I've been trying to eat more again, but the malnourishment has made food become a shock to my system and have had to make slow integration over two years to where I eat regularly for the most part, but still suffer severe IBS. Just like I am easing my body, into handling increased nutritional factors, reducing the amount of energy dispensed for an activity through training and fitness is important too. Muscle memory makes every task seem easier, whether it is a mental or a physical activity. When you're in kindergarten, adding two numbers together is difficult, but by the end of high school, adding is easy, but remembering calculus and trigonometry formulas is difficult. The first few days of fitness leaves you feeling sore and tired, but a few months in, you're increasing the difficulty level. This applies to each of our topics. Practice and training reduces the amount of energy required to perform a function. Taking initiative and following through with small, dedicated steps makes it seem more natural or innate. Sorry about my doggo. Let's get back into it. So improving your sleep and rest time works in the same way with small dedicated steps. According to Harvard Health Publishing, scientists divide sleep into two major types. REM, rapid eye movement sleep or dreaming sleep, and non-REM or quiet sleep. Surprisingly, they are as different from each other as each one is from being awake. Yet both may be important for energy. Non-REM sleep involves three stages. Sleep specialists believe that the last of them, known as deep sleep or slow-wave sleep, is the main time when your body renews and repairs itself. This stage of sleep appears to be the one that plays the greatest role in energy, enhancing your ability to make ATP, the body's energy molecule. In deep sleep, blood flow is directed less towards your brain, which cools measurably. At the beginning of the stage, the pituitary glands release a pulse of growth hormone 
that stimulates tissue growth and muscle repair. Researchers have also detected increased blood levels of substances that activate your immune system, raising the possibility that deep sleep helps prepare the body to defend itself against infection. Someone whose deep sleep is restricted will wake up feeling less refreshed than a person who got adequate deep sleep. When a sleep-deprived person gets some sleep, he or she will pass quickly through the lighter sleep stages into a deeper stage and spend a greater proportion of time there, suggesting that deep sleep fills an essential role in a person's optimal functioning. Making changes for the better is a long-term plan. You do not have to take one step right after the other. Your best will look different every day, and even a little effort is better than none. Take the time you need to prepare yourself to take the next step first. Make sure you take the step with confidence so you don't roll your ankle and stumble falling. If you do, though, it's okay. Stand up, heal your wounds, and step back on the path. Short-term gain is great, but it often takes away from achieving the objective. Keep your eyes on the prize, even if you see little rewards along the way. You can always reward yourself for achieving even if no one else recognizes how well you're doing and how big of an effort you're putting in. Believe in yourself and speak or think to yourself with positive efficacy. What is confidence? According to the Internet Dictionary, confidence is the feeling or belief that one can rely on someone or something with firm trust, the state or feeling of feeling certain about the truth of something, or a feeling of self-assurance arising from one's appreciation of one's own abilities or qualities. What is self-efficacy? According to the Internet Dictionary, it is an individual's belief in their capacity to act in ways necessary to reach specific goals. This is a topic most view as black and white, but for me it is so much more complicated, and I imagine many of us are a little more gray than one side or the other. Perhaps you are one way in one situation and another in a different situation. Maybe your outlook depends on the outcome or preparedness. Either way, it is a matter of finding balance and understanding where your internal dialogue comes from. Confident wording is something at which I am rather good at. See how I worded that example? This is an internal dialogue where you can root yourself, root for yourself as your own cheer squad. You know you have put in the work and practice to perfection, so you just need to remind the nervous alarms in your mind that you've got this. Most people lean on negative judgment when analyzing a situation with words like I can't or they won't, which is more commonly placed under self-efficacy. In fact, the two go hand in hand. Where having high self-effacing beliefs often means you are also confident and vice versa with low levels. However, like myself, sometimes low levels can create negative afflictions and low levels can create a positive balance. The key to working with both confidence and efficacy is to understand your internal dialogue. For instance, before I do things, I'm very confident and encouraging of myself, but then when I fail, I'm very hard on myself, battering my ego with should-haves and could-haves, berating my judgment. The negative self-talk then spirals into false judgment 
of my place and position within the group dynamics. I needed to learn what the biases I had put upon myself through life as a survival technique and how were and how these biases affected my choices and behaviors. I had learned that perfection and success meant safe adoration and failure meant judgment, ridicule, exclusion, and possibly punishment. <coughs> this is the greatest this is the case for the grandest undertakings to the smallest. I remember this one occasion. It was my birthday, and a large group of us were camping and enjoying a few drinks. We had made fire nachos, and I had gone to go get something. I think plates from the cottage. And someone else took the nachos off the fire. When I came running back, a little excited and a bit tipsy, I ran into the bench where the nachos were sitting and knocked them all on the ground. I instantly went into fix-it mode, picked up the mess, and threw it on the fire, ran out to the cottage to get more ingredients to make another midnight snack. While in the cottage, I burst into tears because I'm normally always on my best behavior, and the one time I let myself relax, I ruined things for everyone. And that's family for you, making all that noise. But to get back to what I was saying... I didn't notice that one of the kids went and told my husband I was crying. So after I came back, one by one, each of my friends took the time to point out everything I do for everyone. Most saying, it's your day not to stress. And some even pointing out that it was encouraging to know that even the most put together person can stumble and fall sometimes. And knowing that everything will be fine if we work together. <clears throat> sometimes it takes falling to realize that it, to err is human, and friends to realize that being human is perfect in all its ups and downs. At the same time, as I go into acts where I must display my abilities with high confidence and view my abilities and rate myself lower than I deserve, I also have low confidence and low self-efficacy when it comes to self-promotion. My confidence may be high regarding the validity of what I promote, but I question my place as the promoter, often questioning what right I have to push these ideals and what right I do I have to be outspoken when others are silent. This sets my nerves and thoughts of judgment which becomes clear in my tone and body language to a degree I lose the audience's attention and my point goes unheard. This can make life very difficult considering I have chosen to take on the goal of promoting a new way of thinking about mental health and the provisions of healthcare in this regard. To go further into my identity regarding confidence and self-efficacy, I can add another layer where I have low confidence based on experience while secretly having a high opinion of what I could do if I chose to put my mind to it. In these situations, mostly by prioritizing my efforts, I would settle for the consensus of a few experiences and eliminate the skill set from my repertoire, even though I still like doing it on my own for fun. As I said earlier, I have been told a number of times that I am tone deaf, so I don't sing around other people like karaoke night, where I just will not go, and if forced, you can barely hear me, I'm so shy. 
Yet I sing the instructions of what we are doing to my kids, make up funny tunes to help them remember things, and even remember people's phone numbers by singing the numbers a few times till they sound like a jingle. I know if I practice, I could probably be okay at singing and feel more comfortable joining in the fun. The same goes for the other expressions of music being to dance. I am trained and really good at dancing, but I let life get in the way to where there's never really an occasion to be dancing, so I don't. Now I feel out of place when I dance. I feel like I look silly or as if I try too hard, so I follow along with the crowd and just sway to the music. I've lost all my confidence, but still think to myself, if I could just get over this shyness, I could get everyone on the dance floor strutting their stuff, meaning I still have a high opinion of myself. I have the same low-high combination regarding my view of return to work and future in my career life. I consider myself to be an asset to any company and have many school skills in my tool belt, but yet my choice to be family-oriented has left me looking like someone who is not into something for the long haul, reducing the potential of a company being willing to invest in me. As you can see, this topic is not as clear as this or that. But in any circumstance, both what you perceive your abilities and your opinion of yourself or what others may think is an internal dialogue. You have the power to flip the script on that dialogue. But it takes work and dedication to, to thinking with a little more love and respect for yourself. According to my resiliency workbook, you can increase your confidence by practicing the following. Identifying any disordered thinking. Using positive self-statements and celebrating successes. I think you can increase your self-efficacy by being more aware of when you reach your goals. Your belief in your ability to reach your goals is based on experience. The more success you have in reaching goals, the more confident in your abilities you will become. So when you hear yourself saying or thinking, I don't have confidence, remind yourself of what confidence feels like by thinking of the things you can do and how you can relate those skills to what you're doing. When you hear yourself donning a negative opinion of yourself, then challenge where you got that information and give yourself small goals to practice changing that self-reflection. Find creative small ways you can flip the script on words like I am scared to I will try and keep trying. I am a failure to I am good at different things, but I'll give it a go. I don't deserve this to I have earned this. I have no right to my opinions are valid. People won't like me to I am worth getting to know and the like. By expanding the eternal dialogue and asking yourself why, assessing the similarities and differences in situational facts <clears throat> and realizing the use of negative words or labels. Then asking yourself if someone came to you with this problem, would you judge them the same way or encourage them? And how would you do that? Rarely are we as hard on others as we are on ourselves. So this is an exercise in granting yourself the same compassion you would others, heading this, heeding the same advice you would give to encourage others. And with practice in doing so, learning to respect yourself with more, which will in time Build your confidence and opinion of yourself. An example of confidence versus self-efficacy 
from my occupational therapist is the act of cooking, and it can be explained differently using the two concepts. Being confident is cooking a dish you have always made and have no problems making without a recipe, but you would be less confident with a new dish you had never made. <clears throat> Having high efficacy would be saying, I am good in the kitchen, despite being more confident at some dishes than others. Whereas having low efficacy would be saying you were a disaster in the kitchen. I've burnt, I've even burnt water, even though you burnt the water when you were 14 and just learning to cook on your own while being distracted. Values, rules, biases, experiences, drive and motivations all kind of blur into these two concepts as the language that revolves around them. We sometimes refer to this language as the voice in our minds. However, it may not always present reasonable conversation to listen to. It is important for the whole of you to be understanding of the moment so you can understand where the internal dialogue comes from, why certain external factors affect you, and what lens you are perceiving the source input from. Being able to separate the difference between fact and opinion. Being able to understand these aspects of a moment can give you a sense of control when maneuvering through the moment. Building your confidence, the more you find yourself successfully navigating towards the future and vision for yourself, the next moment. Tomorrow, a week from now, a year from now, even. Your, your efficacy increases through our celebration and recognition of achievements. In these small goals and in the time of internal dialogue will alter to suit the path forward instead of speaking from a state of survival, fight, or flight. Some points on living true to your identity that I found powerful from some of the TED speakers and internet voices are Brianna Brown and how she has this incredibly powerful way of translating her studies on shame to a positive with how she explains how to be a wholehearted individual. Courage means to display your heart for all its ages in its origins, whereas it is now defined as the choice and willingness to confront agony, pain, danger, uncertainty, or intimidation. Valor is courage or bravery, but especially in battle. The happiest people have the courage to embrace their vulnerabilities and still choose happiness. Vulnerability is the birth, birthplace of joy and a necessity for drive in that it makes positive changes despite the struggle to get there. Guy or Gee Winch talks about how improper emotional hygiene can allow us to distort how we process the information we confront by using some personal vulnerability examples of his life as a twin to explain how the unhuman, unhealed human nature tends to focus on things like preference and loneliness, creating ripples of impacts to all other aspects of how we express our identity. Harry Porson and Jeremy Griffith talk about why humanity behaves and ident identifies the way we do and how we can learn to heal from the age of survival, flight and fight and flight.
this is some very important tidbits of information in their various human condition videos that impact how we form our identities under these globally felt parameters as they have come to understand it through the World Transformation Movement studies. I highly encourage everyone to take a listen to what these enlightened people have to say. As I leave you on this topic, I challenge you to think about this mindfulness exercise until then as well. Think about your identity right now and write all the words that pop up in one thought bubble. Then think about what you hope you will be like in a happier future in another bubble. On another page, draw two overlapping bubbles. Look at the words you wrote in the last step. Words that are in both bubbles, write in the overlapping spot. With the rest of the words from each side to determine if any traits can be praised by similarity or opposite, and write them in their perspective bubble sides in line with each other, drawing an arrow from now till then on each. Scramble the rest of the words around the edge of your perspective bubble. Now for each arrow, ask yourself if there is another way of looking at the trait or if the trait can transform into the other it is pointing to. I will close the conversation by drawing another card from the positive attitude zone, pass cards for short. This question will be the opening question for next episode. The card drawn is the color blue for self-esteem and values. Now the question is, what do you like learn about learning? We will get to that next week, but in the meantime, you can get your pass cards, positive attitude zone,